and welcome to you all to a panel discussion titled, perhaps a little bit too glibly, Whose Literary Canon Is It Anyway? Sponsored by uh, Penn, the Penn American Center, and the Institute for the Humanities. Uh, since you've all shown up here, uh, presumably nobody needs to have the concept of the literary canon explained, uh, which is a kindness. In point of fact, with the canon controversy, along with the related phenomenon of multiculturalism, providing the fodder for cover articles in Newsweek, New York, the New Republic, a whole issue in fact, and long pieces in the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of book, Books, and so on, the literary canon is in danger of becoming the cultural flavor of the month. Uh, this panel has been convened to shed some light on the whole matter of canon making and canon breaking. Uh, before I introduce the panel members, I'll offer my one tiny scrap of insight for what it is worth. In the early to mid-1970s, my first job in publishing, I'm a book editor now, uh, was with a large college textbook publisher, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, writing ad and mailing brochure copy. I'm sure the people on the panel threw out my uh, brochures without looking at them. Um, HBJ was particularly strong in English, especially in the varieties of college readers, and I can't tell you how many times I typed out as a selling point of their revised editions more selections by black women and other minority writers. I think I quit because I got tired of typing that sentence. Uh, under the pressure of the social movements of the 1960s, the readers and the anthologies were casting their editorial nets wider in a classically liberal process that the government textbooks referred to as conflict and consensus. It was my thoroughly uninformed impression that this process was moving apace in the past 15 years, but clearly conflict has outstripped consensus in matters of the literary canon of late. Our panelists will surely help us to understand why this is so and what we might all think and do about it. Um, so working uh, from your left, I will introduce the panelists. Edward Said is the Old Dominion Foundation Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. His books include Joseph Conrad and the Fiction of Autobiography, Beginnings, Intention, and Method, The Very Influential Orientalism, The Question of Palestine, The World, the Text, and the Critic, and the forthcoming musical elaborations. David Bromwich, to, uh, uh, to the right, is professor of English at Yale University and the author of Hazlitt, The Mind of a Critic, and Choice of Inheritance, Self and Community from Edmund Burke to Robert Frost. Uh, jumping the gentleman in the middle, we come to Catherine Stimson, who is the Dean of the Graduate Faculty of Rutgers University and served as the President of the Modern Language Association for 1990. She is a founding, the founding editor of Signs, a journal of women in, cult, in culture and society, and the author of Class Notes and Where the Meanings Are. Arnold Rampersad is the Woodrow Wilson Professor of English and Director of the Program in American Studies at Princeton University. He is the author of a two-volume biography of Langston Hughes, Volume 1, one subtitled I Too Sing America, and Volume 2, I Dream a World, as well as The Art and Imagination of W.E.B. Du Bois. And at the left, um, you're at the right, we have Camille Paglia, who is an associate professor of the humanities at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, and the author of Sexual Personae, Art and Decadence from Nefertiti to Emily Dickinson, 
as well as a much commented upon defense of Madonna, the pop cult figure, not the religious cult figure in the New York Times. Um, <laughs> the intrepid moderator for tonight's proceedings is Morris Dickstein, who is a professor of English at Queens College and the City University of New York Graduate Center, and the author of Gates of Eden, American Culture in the 60s, back where all this stuff started. I turn the stage over to him. Well, I, I think it's unusual and, and, and significant that the, the issue of the canon has leaped over from the, from the area of the syllabus and the, the textbooks and anthologies to become uh, not only of wide public concern, but of concern to a writer's organization. Writers are, after all, the, uh, the recipients of the largesse of uh, being proclaimed to be canonical or the victims of being decanonized. And uh, I think this is a, a very appropriate forum to, to widen the... Uh, a usual range of discussion on, on the subject, and I've been asked to uh, introduce this with a little common sense that seeks to take the middle ground. Uh, if I were to put it in the simplest way possible, I'd say that this is a panel on the vagaries of reading. What writers do, what, the question is, what, what writers do we read and why, why simply do we value them? What factors, personal, historical, institutional, influence how we understand their work? If we're high school or university teachers, which books do we choose to teach our students? If we're publishers, which books do we bring out or reprint or include in texts and anthologies? If we're critics, which do we write about most often? Or if we're writers ourselves, which of our predecessors mean the most to us creatively? One of the best things written about this subject is a little parable by Borges that poses as an essay. It's called Kafka and His Precursors, and it tells us that all sorts of earlier writers, figures we'd never connect to each other, uh, begin to look Kafka-esque once we've read Kafka himself. Borges' list is fanciful, but his conclusion is not. The fact is, he says, that each writer creates his precursors. His work modifies our conception of the past as it will modify the future. We can broaden his argument by adding that each culture creates its precursors as well. Harold Bloom once appealed to this essay as a parable about poetic influence, insisting that a strong, <clears throat> a strong writer influences not only, uh, uh, not only those who, who follow, but those who, will, those who preceded him. But we can invoke the same text as a parable of the ever-changing canon, reoriented most often by new imaginative directions opened up by contemporary writing. Each period refocuses its lenses to locate the predecessors that it feels it needs or shifts its angle of vision on a handful of enduring writers to view them in new ways. Sam Schoenbaum and Gary Taylor have demonstrated how each generation constructed its own Shakespeare, sometimes by focusing on quite different plays, more often by reading the same plays in new ways. John Rodden has recently shown how different decades reinvented George Orwell. At the very least, this demolishes the idea of a fixed and unchanging canon of certifiably great works. It presents us instead with the constantly shifting tides of literary judgment, influenced by the whole tenor of a culture, but, but, but above all, by what the best new writers are doing. Each of us, I'm sure, has experienced these alterations in our own reading lives. We can recall writers, composers, painters, who meant little to us in one decade then seemed inexhaustibly interesting a few years later 
when we ourselves and the world had changed. I suppose I was hardly alone in being unable to appreciate Shelley in the late 1950s when the new critics had lectured us on all that was wrong with him, or in finding Henry James virtually unreadable in the late 60s when his meditative elaborations seemed too far from what was happening in the rest of our lives. The Frost and Emerson I read, uh, I read now are not the ponderous dullards who was spoon-fed to me along with Sandberg and William Cullen Bryant in high school. The canon today is full of writers who were resurrected or completely transformed because powerful new writers made them accessible to us, as when Eliot invented John Donne, or Allen Ginsberg opened up a different Walt Whitman, and Alice Walker helped Zora Neale Hurston come alive again. These were not chance occurrences. They were writers in the vanguard of broad cultural movements, modernism in one case, the counterculture in the second case, or black feminism. Only rarely have critics alone achieved a similar impact as when Randall Jarrell and later Lionel Trilling uncovered a darker, more terrifying frost behind the middle brown mask, a frost who surprised even the poet himself. I realize that my emphasis on writers and their cultural antennae, though appropriate to a pen forum, is completely out of keeping with how the debate is usually posed today, when the terms are usually entirely academic and political, not literary. Who controls the reading list? Who gets into the widely adopted anthologies? Or how is this text deceiving and indoctrinating us? What institutional forces lie behind it? Multiculturalism has a very long history in America. Our cultural life has repeatedly been enriched by outsiders who become insiders. Regionalists like the Southern and Western writers, Jews with their European and immigrant baggage, blacks bearing the historical weight of slavery and migration, women whose experiences undercut cherished male myths. There are political dimensions to this struggle for recognition, but many of our current combatants see only the political dimensions. The Bennetts and Cheneys, who see a tide of illiteracy and political correctness eroding Western values, are matched by cultural radicals who see in some of the classics only a hegemonic rationale for exploitation and oppression. Each side is profoundly ideological, each needs the other to confirm its caricature of a monolithic canon heavily freighted with a contested set of values. Neither will allow enough room for the unpredictability of individual works or the enormous variety of the canon itself, porous, shifting, many-faceted, or the tolerance of the tradition with its varieties of dissent and internal contradiction. Each side seeks not only to promote its position within the academic power structure, but unlike previous conflicts over multiculturalism, to delegitimize the other party and indeed the whole process by which marginal groups have always entered the mainstream. The pressure for a new canon or no canon is inevitable thanks to the changing population of the universities, the new paradigms of faculty who have gone to school with literary theory, the intrinsic interest of many new and older writers, and the previous history of exclusion that's helped bring into question the idea of a common culture. But changing the college reading list and stuffing more and more snippets into the textbooks will not in itself remake the canon or rewrite the history of literature. Only the best new writers will make us want to read their neglected forebears, and only critics with remarkable literary as well as political perception will, will help teach us how to read them 
without discarding the best our traditions have to offer. To that end, we've assembled a five-star panel of critics who are not only superb readers, but also acute observers of the process of cultural transmission, who have done work that negotiates the line, if there is one, between aesthetics and politics, criticism and cultural history. Now, our procedure will be as follows. Uh, we've asked the, uh, uh, each, uh, each speak. we'll go in alphabetical order, and uh, each speaker has been asked to make a statement of anywhere between five and seven minutes, and this will be followed by discussion among the panelists, then to be followed by questions from the audience. And, and uh, I'll begin with our first speaker, David Bromwich. Um, can I be heard? My stance in these matters uh, isn't, is not very complex. Uh, it is, you might say it, plague on both your houses stance. The William Bennett House, which thinks that by reading the right Western books in the right way, the political and economic structure of the status quo of the West can be preserved. And what I'll call for short the Left Academy House, whose connections with any active social movement on the left in this country exist but are not to be taken for granted at every point. And which argues roughly if we undermine monolithic ideas of the West which have come down to us through the core curriculum and an all too consolidated group of books called the canon, we will succeed in undermining everything wicked in the political and economic structure of the West or at least contribute substantially to that end. Um, I wrote a statement which just doesn't have anything to do with either view. Um, but I want to introduce it by one general remark. Um, as I see it, the controversy now emerging from the academy into public view about the canon involves a transition from one way of thinking about literature to another. It is a transition from thinking about literature as exemplifying something special and interesting about human action or about the act of communication, treating literature as in some way exemplary. And in the second stage, attending to literature in the interests of the needs of readers. I don't, on the whole, think that this transition is a good thing, but I want to emphasize at the start that it's just the average thing that happens in academies. If you think of the French Academy of Painting in the aristocratic 18th century or in the Republican 19th century, if you think of the Soviet academies of the 20th century and the writers' unions, you'll see just how normal a thing it is for groups that take an institutional interest in writing 
to express their focus on the cause in terms of a sympathetic concern with the needs of readers. Uh, that is what I'm against, and I'll read this short statement. Literature is an affair of books and authors, of books more than of authors. Its value lies in the power of writing to communicate a human experience. This need not imply a description of something that has been lived or conceivably could have been lived by a person in daily life, since there are experiences of the mind as of the body. In fact, it is easier to say what writing accomplishes than what it describes. The aim is to create a mood of attention. The mood impresses us with a sensation that has the force of an imperative, the command to stop, stand back, respect, which Kant associated with moral freedom and with aesthetic judgment. Moral and aesthetic thought thus share the task of inculcating a duty to treat persons as ends. Persons end one category of objects, which it follows must have a peculiar power to represent the dignity of persons. We honor in works of art as we do in persons the mere fact of their autonomy. Unexpectedly, this sense grows stronger <clears throat> and not weaker when we attend to books rather than to authors. Literature may want to convert or persuade its readers to something besides a mood of attention, the preference for a certain way of life, a habit of valuing choice sensations, the strengthening of solidarity within a given social group. This persuasive aspect is useful to study, but it is not itself what defines literature. When taken to explain comprehensively the motives of a writer's work, biography and history and sociology, I think in about that order of utility, are likely to have the effect of making readers impatient, that is to say, inattentive to the words on a page. Wordsworth said in his preface to Lyrical Ballads that just one restriction, as he called it, stood between the poet and his interpretation of the image of things. That restriction was the reader, in particular, the requirement of the poet that he give pleasure to the reader. Wordsworth guessed that the reader ideally could be imagined as an accidental listener to the dialogue of the poet's mind with itself. By contrast, the pragmatic bond between poet and reader, the limited contract of the poets somehow having to give pleasure, might be regarded as an unhappy necessity or as a preservative of sanity for the otherwise solitary poet. Anyway, the pleasure in question for Wordsworth was not to be confused with a pleasing feeling. It could be any reminder of the blind love, his words, by which we are attached to life. Literature, that word, the concept which it represents, is an abstraction partway down a chain of similar mental entities that begin as serviceable fictions and end as institutional lies. More vivid than literature are such ideas as the individual mind or, better, the sense of a possible relationship between me and someone else. Less vivid is the idea of culture, and much less vivid are hegemonic structure, dominant ideology, discursive framework. But the idea of culture is already a lie. 
We use it to suggest that works of art come to us grouped together as if there subsisted between them over time a set of internal relations on which some elusive larger good depended. A debate about culture, therefore, is always a debate about lists of books. It deals with authors as a lump sum and with readers in the mass. Once we suppose literature is nothing but authors conciliating the aggregate purposes of readers, the way lies open to the demand that books conform to the social aims of a group. These come to us pre-digested as the aims of a person do not. Yet if literature has held in many times and places a single common end, it is that of breaking up every such group image by showing that the same words can matter immensely and matter differently to different persons. Only to a small extent can this lesson ever be taught. It would be better not to teach literature than to teach it as one among the many available techniques of mass persuasion. Our next speaker will be Camille Paglia. <laughs> I don't want to bellow. I don't want to break your eardrums. Okay. Um, I'm very concerned about education. Um, I had a wonderful, rigorous, conservative education. A lot of it was the product of um, unmarried um, teachers in grade school and elementary school, high school, who today would have um, other careers open to them, like law or medicine. Um, you know, those, those women of um, the old days, so disciplined, so caring, and so on. Um, and all the wildness of my own writing and my own imagination is made, was made possible by the rigor of that, of that education. Now, today, um, we have kids who are the product of divorce, latchkey children, and so on. And as I sense it, um, they're hungry, they're empty. And education today is not giving them anything. It was my generation that did this, my generation of the 60s, and its demand for relevance um, has knocked all of the foundations out from the kind of education that, that I had. Now, I've written um, a massive and caustic expose for a magazine called Orion, which is a, a journal of the classics and humanities at Boston University. And it's extremely long and extremely detailed, and I make specific proposals for radical restructuring of the university and uh, radical reform of all kinds of job recruitment and promotion procedures in the profession right now. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't get into in all the detail there about it, but let me just say a few things that um, when, I, when I was in, the, um, in college in the late, in, in the mid-60s and then graduate school in the late 60s and early 70s, I felt um, very claustrophobically the, um, the hegemony of, of, the, of the WASP male professors. I felt there was in New Criticism a kind of um, just a, a, a suffocating Protestant gentility that I found uh, insupportable. So what I've tried to do in my work was to add what was missing to that, um, to late New Criticism. And those things are sex um, and history, the two large things. But in doing this, I've always wanted to preserve aesthetics, and it's, it's a very, very difficult task to do. You have to find a kind of delicate language 
in order to um, go smoothly from, in, in talking about a work of art, going smoothly from an aesthetic issue into his, an historical or sexual one. Um, and it's just it's taken me decades to, to work it out. Now, what I object to today is the debasement of these two great themes, sex and history, by people who don't know what they're doing, okay? by people who have not done the, re the required research, by people who are uh, produced by uh, English departments, uh, uh, parochial construction that should be put out of its misery. Now, part of my, um, my desire for reform would be just to smash all the departmental structures of uh, the university at the present and to create new humanities um, constellations in which you'd have a kind of fusion of the arts, um, because a lot of the, the uh, argument about the, the literary canon um, is made futile by the fact that literature is being considered in isolation. And then once you start doing that, then it's an endless chopping, well, how about this book, what about that book, let's, let's you know, subtract this, add that, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at um, the history of culture in terms of all of the arts as a unity, you will see there is a pattern. There's a wonderful pattern. There's a long story, a wonderful narrative that begins in Egypt and goes through Greece and Rome and comes down to us through the, through the medieval period, the Renaissance, down to today. Um, and what, what's been happening lately is that um, certain people uh, influenced by modish and, uh, to me, empty French theory uh, would like to detach literature from this great story, um, which is absurd. All right? uh, if you look at things in terms of the visual arts, you will see there is a long continuum. If you look at things in, even in terms of dance, you will see this continuum. Okay? So at any rate, that's what I'd like to do is to, um, is to break down the parochialism of the exclusively literary way of looking at things and... Um, and once you see the, the arts in sequence, a lot of these arguments could be could be resolved. Okay. Um, now, currently, right now, I'm, I'm engaged in a course at my university, University of the Arts in Philadelphia, um, in an experimental course <clears throat> called East and West with a Chinese artist named Lily Ye. And what we're trying to do is to find um, the big points of um, comparison and contrast between Eastern and Western culture, see if we can find something that, um, that would be useful um, for other other universities uh, to adapt and to try, but always from a strictly historicist basis. I'm an old historicist, okay? What's, what calls itself new historicism is just Play-Doh, okay, to me, okay? Um, and I will say things, you know, in greater detail in my expose on that question, right? So, um, so for me, if I'm to look back at, you know, what's led up to this particular debate, I would say this, right? um, the liberal conservative di dichotomy um, on this and other academic issues is a false one. Um, the liberal conservative no longer mean anything after my generation of the 60s by its excesses smashed um, liberalism. Liberalism no longer exists. Uh, one of the problems is that um, we've had uh, the pretense of left leftism coming from basically nerds and yuppies in the academy, okay, who are not le not leftists at all. Okay, the real radicals never went on to graduate school. Uh, when I entered graduate school in, six in 68, they didn't go on. Okay, right. Okay, and if they if they got there, uh, they left. Okay, or they were driven out. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, all right. And then when, if they completed graduate school, they couldn't get a job. And if they got a job, they couldn't get promoted. Okay. So this idea that these people, these trendy, and that they're academic Marxists at Princeton or Harvard is absurd. Okay. If you knew how many of these leftists, okay, have trust funds. Okay, I, I happen to know. Okay, I know a lot of them. If you know how many of them, you know, their parents happen to be like, you know, posh Harvard professors and so on. It's disgusting. It's revolting. It, get, it has given leftism a bad name. These nerds. Okay. All right. So. 
What I want, what I'm going, I'm, I'm exposing them. Okay, they've gotten a free ride. They've gotten a free ride because the conservatives have have taken their word for it. Okay, said so yes, you're leftists, you you awful people. No, they aren't. These leftists got it late, you know, secondhand, you know, special delivery from Paris in the 70s, and, and that's another story. Okay, all right. So at any rate, okay. Um, what I do in my expose is expose what basically is the problem of the profession, that is it's rampant careerism. Um, a lot of the problems come from the kind of um, cronyism uh, and the kind of um, back-scratching, ass-kicking, and so on that is, that is demanded of you in order to rise in the profession. So part of my restructuring um, would be to relieve, um, relieve young professors from the necessity to publish quickly and, and things like that, and, and to, to allow more time to, to study, to put learning at the center of the profession, not being up on, oh, thank you, thank you, learning. I heard that. It was applause for learning. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Learning. That is study of the entire uh, magnificent history of scholarship for the last 200 years. I mean, this, this idea that somehow the world was invented in 1969. Are they out of their minds? Okay. These contemporary theorists, theorists who are pushing Lacan, who don't know Freud, et cetera, et cetera. It turns my stomach. Okay. Uh, that this is what's being peddled instead of education today. All right. There is there is 200 years of great scholarship, and there's several thousand years of, of great works of art to look at and to learn about. Uh, several thousand years of great books to master and to learn about. Okay, now it, it is true that when we, in, in terms of modernism, of course, there's going to be a debate about what is what is worthy of study and what is not. People have never been able to see clearly um, the author as the writers of their own time. You need you need time. Time has to pass be- before a major uh, off, you know author um, you know becomes canonized. Surely we know Shakespeare was out of fashion. Bach was out of fashion. Both were rediscovered by Romanticism and so on. But nevertheless, uh, we are making at this point we're making decisions that have to do with with a much larger uh, body of, of students than was ever um, you know was ever the system before. Usually, a very small number of students went on to Ox- Oxford and Cambridge and so on. So, at any rate, um, what I, what I would like to do again, I, I, many there are many many issues to deal with. But um, some of the people who are against the canon believe that greatness does not exist. I believe it does exist. All right? I believe if you if you can't see greatness, then you are small. Okay, right? Michelangelo was great. Picasso was great. Uh, Beethoven, Wagner. These are these are. I'm, it's too bad there there are white males, isn't it? Okay, it's just it's, it's an awkward, all right. And and the and the, the great search for you know for for that like neglected woman writer. I mean, or the, the great neglected genius. I mean, they haven't turned up one. Now they turn, now they turn up a lot of uh, neglected minor figures, and, I, and I'm glad for it. I've always liked Romaine Brooks and you know and Amy Lowell and things like that. I'm I'm happy for that. Happy for the resuscitation. Right? But still, there has been no major figure that's going to shake the foundations of Western culture as we have as we have understood it. Uh, um, and I, I don't see the point, okay, of, um, of teaching minor writers. Give them a reading list, for God's sake. Here's a reading list. You're interested in this? Go read it. Okay, all right. But it, it, the large works that require uh, complex analysis, that need classroom instruction, those should be the basis of the curriculum. Well, the one thing that our students lack is a sense of history. Give them a sense of history. Right? Give them a sense of the past. Our students are the present. They are the present, okay? And popular culture is the present. That's another issue I want, you know, I, I want to talk about. All right, for me, now, what I, see, what, in my book, I'm, I don't want to take too much time. You, better, you want to cut me off. You better cut me off at the, at the right moment. All right. Um, what I've done is to show okay, that um, you know, Martin Bernal has a book, Black Athena, which, which does something a little bit similar to what I've done. But in my work, I, I, I have argued that the Greco-Roman tradition actually originates in Egypt. The Apollonian line of, of, uh, of argumentation, of aesthetics and so on, originates in Egypt. Now, if you do that, you notice that this knocks out the whole racial argument about the canon. If you see that the source of the Greco-Roman tradition was in Africa, then we're all set, aren't we? Okay. All right, then it's one long tradition going 
going back to Egypt. And of course, Egypt isn't studied because there's not enough literature there. Heaven forbid we should look at visual objects or learn about archaeology, learn about the past. Right now, if, if we study Egypt in detail at the very beginning, you, you, you are giving everyone, okay, you're giving everyone a sense of their, of their um, historical roots. Now, the popular culture thing, I see, I, I follow rigorously the, the, the canon as it is un- ordinarily understood right down to 1920s. Okay, at that point, I feel pop culture takes over and it, and it dominates the century with very few exceptions. You have a few things in high art and that's it. I mean, Jackson Pollock, you know, Jean Genet, Tennessee Williams, things like that. But otherwise, I see movies, okay, as, as, as raising women to an incredible um, level and I see African-American culture triumphing in rock and roll and R&B, you know, in soul music and so on and so forth. Now, if, if you can't see that around you okay, our students know it. Okay, the, the, you know the our our students are, you know know the fact that um, African American music and dance have swept this world. They're world shaking importance, and we just have to adjust um, you know the academic um, uh, vision enough to be able to take this in. And, and and by the way, I don't mean so that you take like a piece of popular culture and then you use it for a semiotic analysis or you mm, a little bit like Lacan and Derrida and so on. Ugh, no, we don't need that. Okay, all right. I'm calling for an American criticism for American culture. All right. All right. On that, yes. On that uh, note. Oh, on that note. All right. Okay. Great. Right. Coming up. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Our third speaker is Arnold Rampersad. <clears throat> well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, one of the few occasions when I regret deeply that R follows P. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll be brief. I'll try to be brief anyhow if I'm not brief, out of deference to the uh, stars on the panel. The stars know who they are. Um, (laughs) It's not going to be entertaining. And and because because the topic, to tell the truth, doesn't really excite me. Um, I I know that something is going on in all this debate on the um, on the on the canon, but I, I feel it's a, it's a red herring of some kind. I know I'm smelling something fishy, um, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. And um, I also understand that that's a position too. So I'm not entirely naive um, on on uh, about the the relationship between politics and um, and say cultural and cultural theory or literature. Um, I have no objection. I'm just going to be personal, more or less. I have no objection. I know in my bones I have no objection to what is called the canon in English literature. Um, I sometimes like to point out that I've never been asked to read a book that I didn't that I wasn't glad later on I had read. I, I can't remember a single book forced on me in in in, uh, in the university that I re- regretted reading, except perhaps The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. <laughs> uh, I have never found the... Um, Big exception. <laughs> is that... Well, anyway. I have never... I've never seen the canon as unchanging. I've not experienced it as such or as unchallengeable. I've seen Latin and Greek. Um, I had five pleasant years of Latin in high school. I was slow, obviously, and kept back. Um, but... Um, I've seen Latin and Greek fall away as a requirement in uh, graduate programs at Harvard and elsewhere, and uh, without the um, pressure from from new forces that we are talking about, um, largely they fell away largely because of common sense, and they fell on their own uh, on, on their own weight for what they were being um, asked to do. The Fireside poets died, and and many people have, or some people have tried to revive them, and it hasn't worked. Uh, so the the canon is not all that um, um, uh, inflexible. Uh, to say the least. 
least. For whatever per reasons, personally, I've always had an alternative literature, or I've already always seen literature in a particularly, what to me is a broad way. Um, I remember in high school reading Tintin Abbey, being introduced to Tintin Abbey at about the age of 15, and after two readings I knew whole, uh, whole great passages of it. It, it, uh, it swept me completely, so did uh, Shelley uh, to a lesser extent, but uh, he certainly did. At the same time, I was reading the first novels of V.S. Naipaul and Derek Walcott, the first poems of Derek Walcott, and being uh, and feeling Derek's poetry in my uh, just uh, send uh, <coughs> shivers through me. So, and I didn't see any anything um, uh, uh, irreconcilable about these two, two these two groups. It was clear to me that the old and the new, the future and the past were an exquisite, fertile interplay, and the result would be irresistible and would be, would be fruitful. I recognize in the anti-canon forces a great diversity, including elements with which I, I can't possibly agree, and I'll touch on those rather than those with which I agree, those elements. For example, the Philistines, who in truth dislike imaginative writing, um, and, uh, but, but offer arguments uh, to appear uh, to be um, not Philistines, but in fact that is what they are. They are against writing, imaginative writing. They don't have, they don't feel the writing, they don't feel the power of language, but want to, to tell us what we should do with that writing. Those who depend on slogans and talk about dead white men um, as if we shouldn't respect the dead, <laughs> or men, or white men of talent. Ultra-cultural nationalists, not cultural nationalists. I believe it's, it's just clear from history, literary history that cultural nationalism is a very important phenomenon. But ultra-cultural nationalists who pretend that cultures exist in vacuums but worship authors who were themselves extremely cosmopolitan, who will tell you about their profound love of Toni Morrison but don't want to hear about her important academic work on Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner or the fact that she was raised as a Roman Catholic and continues to be one. Uh, the cultural relativists, uh, that aspect of cultural relativism, who uh, sometimes abuse the definition of culture and define culture um, by the collective inability of their particularly small group or their particular small group to perform basically simple tax, tasks of the intellect. Um, on the other side, I recognize the diversity of the pro-canon forces, but realize there are elements I can never agree with again. One, the Anglophiles, the Laura Ashley crowd, I sometimes call them. Um, I, I don't mean to criticize anyone in the audience uh, where you shop, um, although I don't know what you're doing here. Bergdorf Goodman isn't good enough for you. Um, the, the Anglophiles whose opposition to the new forces uh, continues the inherent opposition to American literature and American culture itself in a covert and, and destructive way. Secondly, um, this is, these are in no particular order, the instinctively reactionary who like to think of themselves as conservative but defame conservatism uh, in doing so. And obviously I believe that conservatism has, has an important role to play. That is almost fatuous as a remark, but it has to be stressed. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, I can never agree with those people who come out and state their opposition to popular culture as if it, popular culture, the study of popular culture is some sort of disease um, that, uh, that they should keep as far away from as possible. The um, cultural absolutists who cling to the notion uh, that one culture in particular and indeed one culture alone probably equals civilization. And then the other cultural absolutists who, whether they know it or not, are in fact continuing racist arguments about so uh, about um, so-called based really on on so-called racial superiority 
on cultural grounds, who do not, who pretend to be intellectuals, but do not in fact challenge the category of race as strongly, as rigidly, as frontally as the category of race deserves to be challenged. The truth is that, as, or at least it seems to me, notions of racial superiority have penetrated the study of literature from at least before Hippolyte Ten uh, and his theory of uh, race, milieu, and, 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 uh, and moment, and went on not only through racist works such as The Klansman, but in critics, highly placed um, academic critics such as Barrett Wendell in the 90s, um, parts of the, uh, of the um, some of the fugitives, uh, Irving Babbitt, uh, um, down into our own time. Um, I also want to I want to end by emphasizing that uh, this debate on the canon is, however, not a new debate. It's an old debate. In fact, in some respects, it's an intrinsic part of the American uh, American history and American experience. Um, which has been, the American experience has been feeling the pressures we feel today for at least 200 years, although sometimes these pressures are felt and manifest in, in, in distinctly uh, different forms. The battle is between uh, dynamic versus uh, static concepts of uh, America and indeed of, of, of human nature. Between activism on, on one hand, people who believe in activism, a, a certain degree of activism and believe in the dividends of activism, and basically pacifists on the other. Uh, those who are inclusive versus those who, who, who for some reason will, will to be exclusive. Uh, nativist versus European, uh, those who see some value in the vernacular and those who fall back on what we might call a kind of moldy uh, imitative formalism um, to the exclusion, to the particular exclusion of the vernacular. It may even be reduced down to something as simple as, although I know you think perhaps some of you will think that this is almost insulting of your intelligence, democratic uh, versus uh, the anti-democratic anti se sentiment. Those of us who have um, no paralyzing fear of the new or of diversity or of contradiction or of optimism, but know that um, our salvation involves a fusion of old and new. Know that we continue a line of American affirmation that dates back uh, in this essential American debate, at least to Emerson, Melville, Margaret Fuller, Mrs. Stowe, Frederick Douglass, of course Whitman, um, through that aspect of uh, Santayana that exposed the pretentiousness of the major claims of American high culture, and down onto Du Bois, who said, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not, and down into our time. The debate continues, and, um, and uh, although I say that uh, I am not um, interested or, or it doesn't keep me up at nights, this question of the canon, um, it's because I recognize a, a certain fertile aspect to it. It's a, certain, it's a sign of, of health, I think, when the debate um, reaches a certain kind of pitch. But, of course, I hope that uh, one side prevails, or one side at least is not allowed to, uh, to fall into, into silence. Um, before the sometimes apparently overwhelming might of the other. Thank you. Our fourth speaker is Edward Said. Um, I was thinking about this whole question of the canon as, um, as actually quite interesting in a way because... Um, it is a, it is a, it's a kind of debate that's been going on as between the private experience of uh, reading and writing on the one hand and the public 
And one of the realizations that I, in fact, I just made it right now, uh, listening to the, the, the speakers who went before me, that I've really never taught anything but the canon um, in, in the 30 odd years that I've taught in universities. Uh, I've never taught popular culture or, or comic books or, or, uh, or uh, you know, minor literature. I've always uh, taught the other stuff and uh, haven't really um, thought that was a mistake. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, as I say, the, the question of the, the public setting of the debate about the canon I find actually quite quite interesting, and uh, I, I'd like to talk about it uh, as as that as a as a kind of public uh, discussion that's been going on for for several years now. Um, I have about three or four points that I want to make. I think it's it's true to say that uh, you know what we felt in the last uh, decade with the discussion of the canon, whether you know as framed by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, Heads, you know, Cheney and, and uh, Bennett, or just in discussions at universities like Stanford, where, which have gotten a lot of attention, has been some sense of urgent um, political and, I guess you could say, existential pressures, you know, on on the so-called list, you know, of the of the, the great works. And um, th there's an interesting example of that. Actually, I, I, wasn't, I was debating as to whether I should bring it up or not, but it's, it struck me as so symptomatic of, of this whole discussion, as to this need that people had to find what was best and what to read and what to think and all the rest of it, and how, how sometimes, you know, they, if, you're, if you can get a, an angle on it, it really appears very strange. Uh, was something that appeared in the New York Times on Friday, in fe February 22nd issue. There was a... There was a there was a last of the page of the art section, and a full page on you know what to read about the Gulf and the war, uh, by one of the resident literary critics of the Times. And you, you read it, read through it, and there, there, I mean, there are fascinating things in it. But the, I, I won't go on in great detail about it, except to note that even though you get many books about uh, Iraq in the uh, in the centuries up to, say, the 5th century B.C., and five Israeli novels and, you know, histories of war. Fussell's books are all mentioned, for instance, about the modern war, uh, the great war in modern memory, and stuff like that. There isn't a single book mentioned there that deals with Iraq uh, from a period after the 5th century B.C., now, I mean, in, in and of itself, it's just one of those things, you know. And, and you, you, then you say, then you realize, if you, if you happen to be, as I say, if, you, if you're an American reader, well, you know, that's the list, sort of. And it's the New York Times paper of record and all that. But the irony of it is, of course, that Iraq in the period after the 5th century BC uh, was, I would say, probably without any doubt at all, was the central uh, Arab and Islamic country, culturally speaking. I mean, you know, Abbasid culture between the 9th and the 12th centuries, uh, its seat was Baghdad. And in the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries, it's, Baghdad is also the city I mean, it, you know, where the revival of modern Arabic culture took place. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of a, it, it, there's a wonderful example of how lists are made and canons are formed, I mean, admittedly, in this rather journalistic way. But still, people will go and say, well, the New York Times said we should do this, that, and the other thing, and there are these funny, you know, uh, lapses. So, uh, uh, so I mean, that's a 
stress list, you know, the books that really should get on the list and so on. And, and that takes two forms. One is these are the best that has been thought and known. In other words, you know, subspecies tenetatis, these are the best books. Or uh, the best, as in the case of the New York Times list, the best that is known and thought, uh, has been known uh, and, and thought on a given subject. But I think the point really that in a certain sense we've all been making is that you really can't teach uh, a canon. Uh, you can teach books. And there's a, there's a wonderful remark by Samuel Butler in The Way of All Flesh where he talks about a clergyman having to be a kind of human Sunday uh, all the time, you know, especially to his family. And, and in a certain sense the canon has to somehow you get the impression from the people who argue for it rather stupidly that it's supposed to be, you know, kind of a human Sunday. So I think the point to be made then is that, 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 the, that to, those of us who teach and write uh, books uh, can only teach books and ideas. The trouble is that in most cases the great books are read, I feel, uh, certainly at, at Columbia where I've taught for so many years, where we have a great books course, which has been very important. But for the most part they're read ahistorically in this kind of uh, uh, way without knowledge of the language or, or, the, or the culture and in, in, in a highly selective way so that it becomes a kind of, uh, kind of stand-in. I mean, the impression you get, it becomes a kind of stand-in for a national curriculum which isn't really there. Uh, or it becomes also a, a stand-in for an official culture. Uh, uh, for me, I think, uh, as Arnold was saying earlier, I think it's really a matter of how uh, things are read, and, and not only what is read. I mean, I, I, I feel that the, uh, if the reading of the great books is essentially, and, and it can be at times, particularly if you're a, a harried young instructor having to teach, you know, huge masses of Homer and the Bible and Dante and so on in a matter of weeks, it becomes a really a matter of, you know, repeating ideas uh, that you've read somewhere else, or, you know, veneration of uh, of authority of some kind. I think it is true to say, however, that, that, that there are values and hierarchies, you know, in, embedded uh, in culture, but I don't see myself any particular value in teaching them as uh, hierarchies and values. And it, you understand what I mean in this kind of passive way, you give the student a sense of what the important books are by telling them these are important. Um, and it seems to me, therefore, that what is more interesting is to understand how, if you're going to talk about great books as great books, to put them in quotation marks and to show how great books are made, you might understand, not only how a book is constructed, but how it might become a part of a canon uh, in, in, in one way or another. And the third point I want to make, and, and this is really addresses a theoretical, uh, an issue in, in theoretical uh, criticism of the last decade or so. And that is, it seems to me that one of the most interesting things about great books, uh, and I mean it without irony, I mean books that are interesting to read and study, yeah, belong to high culture, etc., is that they are, that they really can be read and taught, I feel, as books containing passion and advocacy of one sort or another. I, I say that in particular because one of the more influential theories of reading, as it's called, uh, deconstruction, or what has also come to be known as post-axiological criticism. I, I don't think I can explain that, but because uh, I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it suggests that there are no values, that you teach books in a certain sense without worrying about what the values are in them, or that all values are in there and therefore equal, or that there's so many values that they're all 
uh, sort of paralyze you, or that you really can't decide what the best values are. I mean, all of these to me strike me as forms of cowardice, you know, and, 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 and sort of backing away from the book or instituting a kind of <clears throat> technological dance around the book, which I, I don't think is very, is very interesting. And the last point I want to make is that uh, on the question of other canons and alternative, I think, I mean, I really think that is an interesting question. I, I don't mean, you know, idly making up lists and then saying, well, if we have this list, there's an A list and there's a B list, it becomes like a sort of menu. But rather the whole business of, you know, what, of, of what has been called a critique of Eurocentrism. I mean, for example, Martin Bernal's book has been mentioned by uh, Camille Paglia earlier. I mean, that really was a way of, of to a certain extent, displacing the origin of Greece from Greece itself or from an Aryan invasion from the north to Egypt, to the south, to, to Africa, and so on. Now, one could see that critique really leading to, from Eurocentrism, let's say, to Afrocentrism, or in some instances in the part of the world from which I come, Islamocentrism. And it seems to me that all those centrisms, you know, have a very dangerous habit of uh, starting this game of endless displacements, uh, and you then get, instead of alternative canons, you get canons that are, I mean, you don't see them as present to each other in a certain sense, but rather as fighting each other, and therefore you have to pick one. And it becomes a form of, I guess you could call it fundamentalism, you know, and you're always trying to find. I think that has been, you know, exceptionally bad because it, in a certain sense, it, it introduces a form of separatism, you know, and suggests that what we can do is sort of pull out from some larger group or whole a smaller part and sort of uh, venerate and, 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 and focus only on that. And it's always seemed to me that the most interesting moments in the uh, contest or battle between cultures, because I think there is such a thing as different cultures and that they're in interactions with each other of all sorts, sympathetic, antithetical, and so on and so forth, is the ones, are the ones rather, in which there are reachings across. And I mean, the example that always comes to mind for me, because it's so tremendously moving the way it's put, in C.L.R. James's book, The Black Jacobins, is the, you know, Toussaint Louverture in Haiti, reading the words of the great French encyclopedists and orators in the uh, National Assembly. And, you know, being invigorated by what they said and actually believing quite literally in the rights of man and so on and so forth. Uh, an illiterate black slave in, um, in, uh, in Haiti. And it seems to me that, that, that back and forth is really much more interesting to me than the, uh, you know, the s s s centrifugal approach or whatever you want to call it that has to do with looking only at one thing and saying that that really is all there is. I think the, the best notion is the one that suggests the wider context without violating the aesthetic, which is obviously preeminent, <coughs> the aesthetic and the moral aspects uh, of the literary text. Our last speaker, Catherine Stimson. Well, let the last be quick. I don't think I'm a nerd. I hope I'm not a yuppie. I am a respecter of dead white females. And other than that, I'm in agreement with much that has been said. I certainly agree about the need for history. I certainly agree about the need for imagination. 
I certainly agree about the need for complexity. But this is what I am going to say about the canon. The need to categorize literary works is old. The use of the word canon for a selective list of such works is new. Indeed, it began in 1768. And in the same year, the first numbers of the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica were published. Now, my harnessing of the canon and the encyclopedia together beneath the yoke of chronology might initially seem perverse. For is a canon not exclusive? And is an encyclopedia not inclusive? And are canon formers not picky? And are encyclopedists not wide ranging? I do, however, have a reason for opening with 1768. And simply, I wish to exemplify a truism that, like virtue, often gets mislaid. A literary canon, whatever the name, gets formed in the manufactories and networks of history, and literary scholarship can and does trace these processes. A canon is the consequence of turbulent, impure historical dramas. And when the last act seems to be over, a canon stands forth as the canon. And each of these impure dramas has three sets of actors. And because these actors change over time, the drama of the canon must be performed again and again. Now, the first set of actors is obviously the texts themselves. And new texts will keep on being written. Dante follows Homer, Shakespeare Dante, Milton Shakespeare, and Matthew Arnold combine them all as he quarries for, quarries for his touchstones in the study of poetry. And an element of suspense in the plot of the canon is which texts will survive, and then which of the survivors will be taken in marriage by that sturdy partner, the school curriculum. In the study of poetry, Arnold said good literature survives and maintains its currency and supremacy because it is necessary for life. It appeals to our instinct for self-preservation. Less grandly, I suggest that the text we remember have these qualities. Physically, they have survived. They have, like Plato or the Bible, been immensely influential. They are re-readable and rewritable. And finally, they show especially concentrated forms of the universal features of language. Now, the second set of actors is the constellations of institutions and groups that renovate, keep, guard, and transmit a culture. Recently, the New York Times told a pleasant story about the move of the New Yorker from one space to another. The Smithsonian Institution was to transfer two offices to Washington, D.C. and preserve them. And the Smithsonian official said, quote, the New Yorker magazine produced much of the 20th century canon, but these offices are almost 19th century. <laughs> now, correctly, the official describes an institution, not atomistic individuals, as a canon forger, and a museum 
a second institution then canonizes the canonizer. Now I had a paragraph about the great books which are published by the Encyclopedia Britannica and I am going to forego it for the sake of time but I give up my sarcasm with a certain reluctance. <laughs> but mostly the contemporary quarrel about the canon, the canonized and the canonizable goes on within institutions. The professoriate, more intellectual publications in their audience, museums and funding agencies. And in part, the quarrel began because if several speakers have said, the demography of these institutions is changing. And since the 1960s, as we all know, newcomers have entered in. But the quarrel then turns snarly because the newcomers often have a triple allegiance. And it is a triple allegiance. First to an institution, second to cultural reform, and third to a cultural family of origin, a race, a sex, a post-colonial nation that the newcomers praise as a source of reforming energies. However, other institutional voices argue with varying degrees of fear, trembling, rage, and tact that these groups are largely without intrinsic cultural merit. The bimbos and barbarians are a priori, a canonical. And obviously then, the bad argument goes, any place they might have in canon or curriculum is unearned and unmerited. And finally, the third set of actors. It consists of readers. The eager are indifferent recipients of institutional judgments. They also decide whether a canonical text will leave the library shelves as text or audio cassette. Readers vote with their sensibilities. And one of my sharp regrets about the quarrel about the canon is this. In part, yes, the quarrel is a deeply serious argument about Western culture as a reservoir of ethical and aesthetic values. But in part, the quarrel is a sideshow, a deflection of attention away from harder issues. And one such issue is literacy. Without a literate audience that wants to read texts from several cultures in past and present, literature is an even more endangered species. Whose canon is it is not a bad question. Whose literacy is it is a better question. For the answers to the first question depend now upon the answers to the second. I'd first like to ask if anyone on the panel would like to respond to anything <laughs> said directly by someone else on the panel. I, I, let me, let me pose a question in the following way. Uh, I think we all may have noticed a, a surprising, perhaps even alarming level of agreement uh, among members of the panel uh, that the canon is something that has historically evolved and so on. I wonder uh, whether part of the terms of the debate may not have been set by the use or misuse of the very term canon itself. Mm -hmm. I noticed a a sort of semantic slide in a number of speakers from the word canon to the word list. 
And if we were always to use the word list instead of canon and we were to include articles in the Times and so on, I think that the, the debate would have taken on a very different, uh, a very different less, perhaps less dramatic character. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, Kate Stimson talked about the survival of texts and certainly the only real canon surely is a canon of something like Greek literature where all the other books are gone and we know what the canon of Greek literature is. Um, I wonder if anyone on the panel would like to comment on the, the question of the, the metaphor or the, 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 the image of, of, of the canon with its theological associations exactly. and so on. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I want to point that out. When I, when I think of canon, I don't think of 1768. Okay, I think of the Italian Catholic Church, uh, of canonizing and of canon law and so on and so forth. And this, this reminds me of the fact that um, when I think of art, I, I think that the origins of art were in religion. And I think of the artist as, as um, belonging to a religious and spiritual tradition. And that's what's missing, okay, from contemporary education. That's what's missing from um, the left dialogue, okay, on the on the canon. Uh, if you if you train students to resent, if you train students to look at the history of art in negative terms, searching them for evidence of male oppression or white male oppression, okay, you are trashing art, and you um, you're not an educator, you're just an ideologue, okay. So well that, part of what I'm would like to part of the major reforms I would like to um, uh, <coughs> bring about. Is a kind of um, is a turning of education toward the the teaching of world religions um, in in the um, in, in the 1960s. We um, we of that generation were heir to the to the beatniks' interest in Zen Buddhism, and then um, we made a movement toward Hinduism, toward India. And I think a lot of um, of the problems of perspective and the the sort of um, uh, the parochialism of, um, of view of so many uh, people, on, as far as I'm concerned, both on the left and the right, um, come from the fact that we're not seeing culture in, in trans-historical and trans-cultural you know, um, breadth and perspective. So I, I, in Aryan, I say, more India and less France. Any, <laughs> any reaction to that? I, I, I take it you think that the religious metaphor is appropriate and useful and there should be more of it. Yes, sir. yes I do. Well. I'd like, I mean, since, yeah. since this is coming across, didn't to me, but it's coming across as a bit of a consensus, maybe because of our academically ironic tones or something. Um, <laughs> well, let me try to break up the consensus and get a fight going. Um, Catherine Stimson made a point about demography and how the inevitable presence, the coming into our academic communities of people of different social and genetic origins is going to make a difference, has to make a difference, is going to and should, is and ought, um, in the proportioning of the books we read. This is a point on which disagreement can exist. Um, I'd ask individuals in the audience to consider how far they want to be made to feel as individuals that you belong to the works of such and such culture identified as your place or genetic point of origins and that culture belongs to you. The demographic argument hangs on a strong identification of that kind. Um, my desire to get rid of the whole 
conception of culture and thinking about what is great in books and in education wouldn't accept that for a minute. Um, Professor Rampersad made a point that the fights were going on and seemed to suggest that the dangerous tide of anti-anti-canonical resentment might place in danger some of the alternative achievements of the last couple decades. I, I agree that the uh, argument is going now stronger than ever before, but I want to suggest that what everybody who's been reading about this in the academic journals or the popular press knows, it is, a, it is an argument where the majorities are, or at least the articulate voices, are uh, pretty well settled on one side in the academy and on the other outside. Outside you have, you know, for short, sarcastic persons, you know, conservative Philistines or highbrows, and inside you have the left academy. And I want to suggest that from my perspective as an observer, this general perception of how things line up is right. The battles against traditional teaching aren't in danger of being lost by the anti-traditionalists. They're not losing ground inside. The third point is very general. It's just a sort of um, footnote to what I said. Part of the transition I talked about and that other speakers have been alluding to is from some idea of reading books that might be associated with the humanities to a social science view of literature. Um, that is a view that identifies authors and the imagination authors bring to their work with institutions. Culture is one such institution. Political institutions would figure along the same lines. And this is a way in which literature can be studied. If it came in a very large degree to displace the study of literature as writing, I, for one, would be sorry. These are not mutually exclusive emphases, and Professor Said suggested that vividly. But in fact, those who are strongly in the grip of the institutional view of literature don't have temperamentally much time for the other view. Um, just two points. In terms of the analysis of texts, of course you're going to find traces of oppression there. Spiritual oppression, political oppression, psychological oppression, physical oppression. And I think it would be a pity to throw the baby of pain out with the bathwater of simplicity. But next, the question of the students. How do they identify themselves? Listen, we have 3,500 institutions of higher education in America. There are millions, literally millions of students in them. They identify themselves in a variety of ways. Some do identify themselves with their sexuality. Some do identify themselves with their gender. Some do identify themselves with their ethnicity or their race. Some do identify themselves with their fraternity or sorority. And I think that what is our responsibility as, as teachers? What is our responsibility as intellectuals? I think it is to give students a sense of the complexities of history, a sense of the complexities of the imagination in which they can find their place. By that, I do not mean to preordain place, but a sense of history 
in which they can see not their genetic, but their cultural and historical pathways. And if you can't find uh, a woman, a great woman, you're going to make her up? What are you going to do? If well, luckily I can find them and I don't have to make you, her up. You haven't found any great women artists that weren't already known? Oh, Camille. Name one. Like, let's, let's get specific. Let's start naming the names of, of the artists. Let's, let's, let's name them. I mean, well, you, there's a limited amount of time in education okay, that's available. You, we, should be giving, um, we should be giving students the most complex, the, uh, the most time-tested works that are available to them. If, by chance, these happen to be um, you know, major works by major male authors or artists, I don't think we're deforming their psyche okay, by having them, uh, you know, uh, by exposing them to the male mind. This idea that somehow uh, we have to pander to their own inner sense of identity um, and minister to, to their, to their self-esteem. This is not education. Um, let, let, me just, let me just say one thing. When you say, when you just... I, I really, really have, have to answer that. So that is a very I think the question of self-esteem belongs to social welfare, not to education. Well, professors are not social welfare workers, and the social welfare model has taken over the discourse on sex in the universities, okay, and let, in feminism. Let, let me, let, you know, let me try to focus, uh, focus this issue. Uh, the, uh, recently, I heard a colleague of mine when we were debating changes in the curriculum in the college to, to say, uh, heard him say, well, I'm really tired of talking about what literature is. I want to spend some time talking about how literature has been used. And uh, I think the, some of what David Bromwich said about uh, uh, the social science view of literature and so on uh, fits into this. The question is, has there been a shift or a slide towards uh, a, a focus less on literature than on uh, literary institutions. It's certainly not evident in what most people have said in this panel, but it's been part of the debate uh, uh, you know, that, that, we've, that, that we've all been reading about in academic journals. Uh, is there a shift? Is there, is there any contradiction between talking about literature in itself and, 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 and everything that circumnavigates literature or uh, creates the conditions under which it, is, is, it operates? Okay. Way to open open the okay. floor to uh, questions. There are uh, microphones here. The we have two microphones set up in the aisles. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, please come to the microphone and give your name before you ask your question. Have we solved all of these issues? <laughs> Um, my name's Liz Hollander, and um, I, I would like to, I think there's been a problem with focusing on what this issue actually is. This is an issue about education, and it's not describing the canon, putting the canon in its place, tell, saying what we mean by a canon, which we haven't really talked about in terms of its being something other than a list, for example, a, an assumption about the relationship between books, uh, which is, I think, a lot of what, of what 
has come to be understood as the white boy, the bad, the bad guy's white boy canon is about a whole bunch of a, a closed circle of people talking to each other's books over a period of several hundred years. Yes, reading is about paying attention. The importance of literature and art in general has to do with what it does to your attention. That is private, that is individual. The educational issue, and it is pressing, it is difficult, and it is complex, is what kind of relationship do we want to claim between the institution of higher education and the experience of reading books. I think that's really what this question is about. And it's not about, um, it's not a question even of saying, oh, well, white boys are just another ethnicity and they're fine, just like every other ethnicity and every other subculture, and we should just put them in their place out, whatever. But that what we're going to do about how to read. We've got generations of people coming into school now who don't know how to read. I don't mean necessarily literally, uh, that is, they can decipher letters, but they really don't know what it is, and they are not learning amongst a whole bunch of people who are fighting each other about um, whose white boys they want to talk about or whose they don't or what white girls or what other colors of everybody. So my, I would like to address, I would like to ask everybody on the panel to issue a, some, a statement of some kind um, that addresses or begins to address or proposes a language in which to address that issue, which is, I think, the one that really matters here, which is why I think which is why we're all here. I, I agree with that. I, I would like to bring education back to the way it was. When I was young, we had fabulous, fabulous you know, reading instruction, diagramming of sentences and vocabulary, the most basic sorts of rote learning. And that, that is the, from that basic, those basic skills come the complex skills of reading later on. Has anybody else Anyone else? to say? <laughs> well, I thought the last part of my five to seven minutes did address this question of I literacy. Think it did. I, as a matter of fact, I think and it did, and I should withdraw my question to the general panel and say with the general panel, with, with the exception <laughs> of you, because you were the only person who did. Well, let me make two points to you, if I might. We cannot talk about education in a vacuum, as if these institutions of education from preschool through research centers sat there all by themselves. And if we want kids to learn, if we want kids to want to learn, we have to make it possible for them to live as well as to learn. We can't send them to school hungry. We can't send them home to a cold house. That we have to think of the entire context of the well-being of childhood. But in terms of reading and higher education, I agree with you. But then I have to ask myself this. Don't just bash the students. What can they read? And they can read a lot. They can read music. They can read TV. They can read social relationships. And so I think we have to give undergraduates their strengths as well as attacking their weaknesses, often guiltily, often not. I've also noticed the classes in which people want to read. And these are classes in which they feel they're being given something that both tells them something about themselves and enlarges it simultaneously. So I have seen women's studies classes 
where people read and write and read and write because education seems simultaneously self-affirming and enlarging. Um, I, let me just say that the view I was giving of, of what, what literature, what, what books are good for, would lead to something like this idea of how you transform it into a method, a device, uh, a way of leading in students in their education. Um, it, has, it has to do, maybe uniquely it has to do, with, with the possibility of self-knowledge. And the way one comes to know that, the way one gets into a relationship with books which has implications for how one looks at oneself, is by listening to an interpreter and becoming one oneself. Um, so that the view of reading, to the extent that it is a social act, that it can be something a group participates in, that I would affirm most is, is the view that makes it depend on the metaphor of conversation. And you'll find that presented better than I can do it in uh, modern philosophers like uh, R.G. Collingwood and Michael Oakeshott. Um, mm -hmm. It's a prominent view, at least, and Wittgenstein, at least early in this century, of uh, how reading and the sense of oneself have to be related. Yeah. Do you want to yeah, Just, yeah, because, I mean, I think that uh, teaching uh, literature or teaching uh, students how to read and the whole educational process that we've been talking about, I think is based upon discipline and pleasure. And I, I don't think it's possible, really, to, uh, to, to teach something you don't like. Uh, and you're not interested in. So, I mean, what I said earlier about advocacy is terribly important, it seems to me. And, um, uh, you know, and then you bring to bear whatever, in other words, you don't talk about how to do it, you just do it, I think, f with the students. Uh, but as to the question, the earlier question that was raised, which is very interesting, which is the question of, uh, of culture and identity. Um, I mean, I think that it, it, it would really be. You see, I, I think here I disagree with uh, with David. I, I think I think it's it's always in play. Uh, you're belonging to some group or other. Uh, I'm not sure that it's necessary in works of literature to confirm that identity or to question it or to uh, <clears throat> or to pretend it isn't there. I mean, I think it it happens uh, that uh, and and one is, you know, I, I I think what is wrong is to suggest. Uh, and that's why it seems to me that a, a, a wonderful work of literature doesn't fit into something as simple as saying, well, this is a Western book, or this is a man's book, or this is a woman's book, or this is a white book or a black book. But the, it, it, the distribution of identities in works of literature are, it seems to me, what is going on. And I think it would be, it's completely wrong. I mean, I think it's false to pretend that, that, that a book is a self-contained unit and uh, doesn't somehow also participate in institutions and 
groups and cultures at large. Now, you, you may not wish to deal with that, but I mean, uh, it seems to me that the process of reading can become more interesting if, you're, if you are trying to talk about those kinds of connections as well. Uh, it, it, it never struck me as, as disabling, and I think, I, you know... I'm, I'm just sorry, I just didn't mean, I didn't mean to imply that it was. I, what I meant to imply was that the fa that very fact that you describe is because of changing demographics, because of changing priorities, because of changing ideas about what well, women are that go with no, those no, identities. True. No, but that's a very good That very is why point. this is a problem. That's no, it's, all it's, I it's, not, it's yeah. not only, I mean, it's a problem mm -hmm. if it's just a matter of, you know, sort of shouting and saying, you know, uh, you have to talk about this, you have to talk about that, because, you know, there are other, these other identities clamoring for attention. Now, I don't think the classroom is the place for that, to tell you the honest truth, or the university. But what I do think is interesting, and where you can transform what is a <coughs> series of, whether you call them existential claims or new political realities or demographic realities into something interesting. I, I'll give you an example because this is a subject that I find massively uh, appealing and interesting. Many of the works of the great novelists, let's say, of the late 19th century, take somebody like Kipling or Conrad, right? We're writing about parts of the world without a particular attention to audiences in that part of the world, right? I mean, Conrad was not writing for an African audience, and Kipling was not writing for an Indian audience. It does seem to be the, the case that, that these audiences have, in fact, begun to exist and do exist. And one can talk about, let's say, responses, or what has been called by some people writing back to those works in India, in Africa, in the Caribbean with regard to the Tempest, and so on and so forth. I mean, that strikes me as fa fascinating and interesting work that is useful in the classroom in a way in which the simple question of is Western work better than Eastern work is, Af you know, the question is find me the, uh, you know, the African Proust. I mean, that, you know, that silly comment made by somebody. That's, that's a stupid, I mean, it's uninteresting. Zulu tells story. Well, well, there you are. <laughs> that sort of thing is not interesting. Uh, but I, the I, other question, I think, is and does answer to these real, you might say, global changes of demography and, and identity and so on and so forth. But the idea wouldn't be, I'm sorry, just one last point, the idea I don't think, see, I, I'm very opposed to this, the idea wouldn't be, at the end, a nationalist assertion of saying, well, now we realize that it's better to be this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I, that, I'm, that's stupid, I think. Next question. Yeah, um, my name is Jane Schroeder, and I wanted to, to respond to the question that this woman who is now going sitting down, that, that a dimension of that to say that I think, uh, I think that this question is more than simply education. And I, because I think that, and when we were standing online, we were saying something about, um, <clears throat> um, I should also say that I'm one of, I was active in the 60s, and that I am someone who made a decision not to go to graduate school. <laughs> um, and, but I have an abiding interest in scholarship and in reading and, and in what happens to it. And I, I think that it's really important for me to understand that literature has much more to do with books and it has more to do with, with than literature. It has to do with language and the language of a people and how they communicate. And I, I think that that's what's implied in this question that of, of, of canon. Um, of, and, and, I, and I don't, <clears throat> I don't hear a lot of that being raised by the people on this panel who, who are supposed to have a, I mean, I, I don't want to, I'm not challenging in that way, 
I, I just want to strongly say that I do think that this does have to do with language and discourse and conversation and what we can talk about, what's all right for us to talk about and what's all right for, for us to get in touch with to talk about. During the 60s, I, I was educated in a private girls' school, one of the best in the country, and I got a wonderful education in English literature. During the 60s, I, I started reading novels about working class life, and especially working class women. Every <coughs> novel I could get my hand on, because I, I had systematically been kept from understanding them, and also my education had kept me from it, and also the politics then generated kept me from having any kind of interactive awareness of these, of these women. And uh, it profoundly affected me. I carried them around with me. Could you, could you ask your question, right. please? Well, the, the question is, I'm not sure I have, there is a, a question, but there is a... Um, okay. That's but, all right. But I just uh, want to say that, sure. what, that, that that experience has profoundly affected me in my capacity of who I can communicate with and how, and what language, is I, what language I can speak and who I can get close to. It's also helped me to reread Moby Dick in an entirely different way. Okay. Uh, since that wasn't a question, we should go on to the next question, please. Uh, hi, my name is Joyce Hackett, and I just, I'm a fiction writer, and this whole debate to me has very much the same kind of air of the Iraqi withdrawal and sort of f um, bolstering <laughs> up the previous position and bolstering up the previous position, and for me the real question is, do people read, and do they have a joy in reading, and I think the whole debate about what is the canon is, the, the real question is, are people reading, and are people reading in context other than university. I mean, this question assumes that there's a limited number of books that people read in their lifetime and that it is not a th an activity. It's a quantity that people are served up like a dinner. And so my question is really um, just that I wish that the panelists would address not only the question of the canon as an analysis of history but also as a producer of culture and that as a producer of culture, it does affect which books we read. It affects me every time I read the New York Times book review and I see 85% of the books are, that are reviewed are by men. It affects me as a producer. So I'm questioning... Could you, could you ask your question, Yeah, please? my question is, how does the canon... How do you address the canon as the producer of... For example, Camilla Paglia's a great insistent on greatness. It seems to me that greatness is really um, on impinged on by mm -hmm. this whole discussion of the canon. Okay. And I'd like to yeah. just ask the question of what are the criteria of the canon that help to pr also produce great works of literature, not only just judge them in a hierarchical fashion? Well, I think it's probable that if we, we, you know, we could be here for the next 30 days if we try to answer that question fully. Uh, is any, is well, there any way to I answer that very briefly? I just want to say that college time should be used to study works of art that, that are that's so complex that you wouldn't be able just naturally read them outside, and that, and that it, it should set up a habit of, um, of being able to, to diagnose you know, the complexity of literature that, that will serve you well when you go out afterward to buy books in bookstores and, and to read casually. But I, I do not believe in, in uh, simply, you know, simply judging the reading list by whether or not they're self-affirming or not. I think that's a kind of glorified babysitting. Uh, anyone else want to respond to that? Next question, then. Um, I do think that the problem in, in the literature... 
My name is Daniela Giuseffi, and I'm a writer, editor, poet. I, uh, I do feel that the question of illiteracy is something that we concerned with literature really don't face enough. The fact that I've heard Gregory Rabassa, for example, at another pen panel say that less than 1% of the population reads serious literature, and it takes only 1% to make a bestseller, and we're talking about Stephen King or Danielle Steele, whose kiosks are now taking over the public library because she's wealthy enough to donate them everywhere, so that when you walk into a public library where you would hope to find something of real literature and the humanities, you face up, bump up against a great big <laughs> Danielle Steele advertisement, even in the public library. So this this is something we're not facing enough here. Could I, and could I, I ask think, you to ask your question, please? Yes. The, well, the question is that although I agree so much with what everyone has said, I do wonder if, if Ms. Paglia, for example, knows who Grazia Del Leda is, though she seems to think Wagner is great, and I could live forever without Wagner, though he's been forced down our throats, and Henry James is an old dull mouth, like Amiri Baraka says. So who is Grazia Del Leda? Nobel, P Nobel literature winner who's never talked of it all in the United States. Well, see, I, I think that those have to do with contemporary um, literature, and I, and I do agree that, that the question about the, ca the canon of contemporary literature is absolutely totally open to argument and to debate. I, to I absolutely agree with that. What I'm, just, what I'm saying is that um, I don't think there's that much room for negotiation in, like, in the pre-modern canon, let's say from 1900 earlier. That, that's all I'm saying. I, I certainly agree with what, what you're saying right. about, about us reading. Um, I, I think if you're teaching a course in contemporary literature, certainly we should be reading things by European writers, and, uh, and yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right, but I think what I really mean to say is, don't you think the problem isn't that there's Shakespeare and maybe not enough Dante? I have no problem with them, but that we don't get more of a Talat Said Halman and Turkish poetry, or Nawel El Sadwi, the great Egyptian woman writer, or that we don't know who Buchi Amacheta is in the, in the schools, and we don't read Isaac Babel, any, anybody who's good, Professor, but we're forced me, to read Spencer's fair Queen and never taught that he wrote disgusting white papers against the Irish as subhuman people while we're reading the Fairy Queen. Yes, we Humanities are. is the Excuse issue. Me. Excuse me. I must answer that. I must answer that about, about, about Spencer. You read my Spencer, you'll see it's all S&M and porno. It'll be quite a different Spencer when you look at mine. <laughs> uh, Professor Rampersad would like to respond. I just feel I should say something. Um, at some point. So this is it. I mean, I think I mean, I'd like to emphasize two things. One is that so much goes on outside of the university, and a lot of this discussion is predicated on what goes on the significance, the overweening significance of what goes on in the university. Where I think, I mean, to refer briefly to something that David Bromwich said, um, the left may or may not be in control. He says that it is in control in the driver's seat, and the mother of all victories is, uh, is, a, is ahead of us, um, apparently. But I think that you. And James Baldwin. Now they may be all damned together as men, but but basically the two of them, <laughs> contrasting styles, contrasting approaches to life, found in this uh, in this 
what some people consider this bizarre uh, 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 crit critical uh, apparatus, uh, engine, juggernaut that is James, um, um, a great deal of um, direction and solace and, and um, encouragement to go on to do what they wanted to do. So it's, it's, I'm, not that, I'm not saying this to defend James. I'm saying that literature is mysterious teaching. You don't know who you're reaching. You don't know how you're reaching them. It's best to, I guess, just uh, decide what you really like, what turns you on, what appeals to you, the values that you hold dear, and then you, you give it to the students and see what they, what they say in return. That's all, what they think in return. Um, I want to hear, can I say just one or two little things? First, I don't mean to toot my own bibliography, but I have invented something called a paracanon which is a history of the books that have been beloved, truly, truly loved. Because I agree it is necessary to restore the notion of pleasure and the notion of delight to the act of reading. Secondly, let me stand up for Danielle Steele, who has sort of helped me while away a moment or two in a dreary airport or two. But I am not standing up for Danielle Steele because she's gotten me through the night once or twice. If we do not understand the popular, we will not understand the writers who emerge from this in a richer and more complex way. I don't think we can understand George Eliot unless we also understand the quote unquote silly lady novelists that she was both rewriting and repudiating. And finally, Camille, this question of negotiation of pre-1900, well, Melville has been negotiated and renegotiated and I thought, in your own book, you were renegotiating Chaucer and Wordsworth. Yeah. Which one of it that gave you the shivers? Uh, both. Right. Yeah, <laughs> both. OK, well, no, I, can, can I, oh, oh, can I just say one well, thing? Uh, we're, we're up against oh. time pressure, but oh. we have, I'd like. I, I want to reply. Go I right. want to reply. All right. No, uh, but see, I, I mean, I, I agree we have to know the lady novelists, you know, which George Eliot was, was, was answering or, or, you know, or revising. But um, I think it's like, if you have to choose one or the other, okay, shouldn't we rather have the, the students read George Eliot than the lady novelists? That's, that's the question. And by the way, I, 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 it's not Danielle Steele, it's my favorite, but, um, but I consider the most important uh, work of fiction after World War II to be Patrick Dennis's Anti Mame. But I wouldn't dream, okay, of making the students read that, okay? That would be irresponsible for me to, to, to force my private taste on them. I'm a great lover of soap operas. I've been watching The Young and the Restless for 17 years now. Okay, but you know, all right. Okay, we have, we have two more people standing here. I'd like, you, I'd like to take these two questions and then have the panel get its last dibs in. Uh, could I ask you to make, your, make it a real question and make it brief? And the panel, I think, will in turn respond briefly. Well, I'm glad that we're going back to the panel. Uh, my name is Nicholas Cornaris. I just read. Um, <laughs> I've listened to catharsis here and it's, you know, we're doing this whole thing too democratically. If teachers are to be te teachers and to lead, then they should lead. And I'd like to continue to hear what was started before it was cut off and the floor is open to make it more egalitarian. Let's make it, we're here to hear you well, and I want to hear what the controversy well, is and the issues are. So we'll get back to please the Please do it. Okay. Uh, next, last question. Um, I just want to address what Ms. Paglia, um, I just want to address what you said about how we can't rearrange the pre-modern um, canon. And okay, my name is Hasina Muhammad. I'm an Indian and I'm a Shia, which is why I know all the great Jalal al-Din Rumi or Khayyam or um, Hafiz, and they're not taught 
Okay, and they are, I think they're greater than Herak or Dun, and I know this because I'm a Shia. I know that we don't read the Rudra Rakshasha, and that's far better than the Fairy Queen, and I know this because I'm an Indian. And it makes me wonder what it is that I don't know, because you know I'm not an Arab, or I'm not black, that we're not learning about in the pre-modern canon. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I, I agree with you. I'm absolutely. I'm, I, what I'd like to do is just demolish the whole structure of the university as now. All right, and start by teaching the, all the great traditions. Right? Teaching the Western tradition fully and historically. Teaching the Islamic tradition, Hindu and Buddhism, and, and and especially sacred texts or things within those traditions. That's what I would like to see education come come around to. So there is a place now. I, I, whether there's still room for the fairy queen, I don't know. I, I, it may be one of those things that's. Uh, edging toward extinction. Um, I, I don't want to go to, go to the mad about the fairy queen, but but but. Um. The problem with the yeah. canon, huh? the, the problem with the canon for me is that you know it's, it's supposed to be the best that's thought and you know written or whatever, but it's the best that's thought and written that is you know within the reading range of Westerners. And if it's not yeah. in a romance language, whether it's brilliant or not, is irrelevant. We need and radical that restructuring. That infuriates yes. me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need radical restructuring to allow the reading of all the great texts and, and the knowledge of all the great art of, um, of the world. I mean, I think that when our businessmen go to Japan, they should know about the great tradition of Japan. They, they shouldn't be, they're, they're illiterate, cultural illiterate right now. People don't know anything about Islam. It's, it's a disaster for, for our politicians, our diplomats, without any knowledge of, you know, of the Near East. I agree with that. Okay. Well, on, on that note, I'd like to take the suggestion and return to the panel for concluding, summarizing uh, comments. Whoever has any? Well, that was, that was the last question. I'm sorry. One more question? Okay. One more question. It's pretty condensed. Hmm. I'm Melissa Solomon. I'm an aspiring grad student. Um, I once had a teacher at Smith College who told her students, I expect you to listen because my observations are more sophisticated than yours, and your papers must spring from my observations. Now that didn't quite sit with me. And um, so my question is, is what you do with books that are unfamiliar and non-canonical somehow related to what you do with students who also do not fit the status quo? Um, in other words, what do you do with students who fall outside? How to be, as Saeed says, more wide, less centrifugal, even in the confines of, say, a six weeks great books course? How can you nurture outsider status in recognition that it exists? Is that directed at against one of the? Uh, is that directed to anyone in particular? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to answer that. Uh, I think that uh, uh, you put it. I think uh, very very provocatively. I think that to since we can only, I mean, we can't talk about everything, we're talking now only about, I suppose, the teaching of literature. I think to teach literature is in a certain sense to teach unsettlement in some way. That is to say, I, I don't think that the final aim, uh, not the final aim, the aim of teaching a book, uh, I mean, if you try to put it in a theoretical way, is to consolidate something that can be associated with a particular identity or culture in that sense that gives you a sense of belonging, dominance, uh, <clears throat> triumphalism of one sort or another. I think that, uh, that what, 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 really <clears throat> what really ought to be the aim of uh, sort of a Black Mirror idea of, 
un of provisionality and unsettlement. And it, it's very difficult to do because both you and the students and other readers really want certainty of one sort or another, that you, w you want to know, you know what, in fact, this book really means. And I think you really, in the end, feel that you can't say what it means. You can suggest what it means. You can, you can approach what it means. You can, uh, you can come near it, perhaps, in one way or another, but you can't actually hold it in that way. And I think if you can communicate that sense through, through the act of reading, a disciplined and pleasurable act of reading, then, then you've done something. It's very difficult to do, but I think it might, might be uh, an aim. Could I answer that as well? Sure. Right. I th I'm not sure of the, um, of the employment history of everyone else on this panel. I think I'm probably, the career-wise, um, the least successful. Okay? And I have, I have done a lot, I've had a lot of years where I was teaching part-time and so on. Um, and I, I have to say that um, I, have, um, I have a great rapport with um, the poorest students, the very poorest, the ones who are coming, coming off the, um, from, right now I have like brilliant dancers that are coming from you know, farms in South Carolina or from um, the, you know, the, the worst neighborhoods in, in Philadelphia and so on. And, um, and since I'm so immersed in popular culture, it was, the, it was the imagine, you know, that's what I feel is the imagination of the 60s. I have no problem connecting with them at all because, I, because my culture is their culture because I, because I respect dance, I respect you know, African-American music and so on. And it just suffuses my, my, my style. Um, I, I have the least connection with, um, with WASP academics. I have, like at Smith, my sister went to Smith and so on. And um, when I go there, I just can hardly breathe. I mean, you know, the, the waspness hangs heavy like a miasma over Northampton. Uh, okay, well, uh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> uh, I think the, the, uh, we have to conclude. Uh, I'd like to turn to any members of the panel who feel that there, is, there are one or two threads that they would like to pull out of this discussion uh, as, a, as concluding notes, perhaps uh, going in reverse alphabetical order, uh, starting with Catherine Stimson. Um, I just, I wanted to say to Edward that I was moved by what you said and certainly agree with you. I think if there is one thing I would like to say about the canon is it does matter because the canon is what is remembered. And I think if of the many things the canon, canons can teach us, it is the treachery as well as the necessity of memory. So that to study the question of the canon is not only to try to make us decide what we wish to remember, but also to teach us, as I said, the necessity of memory, but also our limitations as rememberers. Edward Said? Oh, no, I've, I've said what? You've said what? Okay. Uh, Professor Ramper said. Well, it's me. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I just want to end by saying perhaps uh, in a sort of reply to um, either the last question or the one before it about books not taught and so on is that uh, I find myself um, at the beginning of every semester 
uh, you know, spending about 20 minutes going over the books we are not teaching in this, uh, in this course and we should be teaching. And I definitely go through a kind of mourning period for mm -hmm. the damnation, in the 19th century, for the damnation of uh, Theron Ware or Miss Ravenel's conversion from secession to loyalty or, or, um, or the MSC or Iola Leroy or something. Um, and I tell myself, well, why don't you just teach those books? Um, well, I feel as if the students are obliged to, um, or I'm obliged rather, to, um, if the students have, are devoting one semester to a particular um, uh, subject, to, um, to let them go with uh, the books that I myself, in fact, regard as the most complex and the most um, uh, uh, alluring of, of the texts. Um, but the, the grief is, is, is real, and I try as best I can to let them know that there is other material out there. And if they are truly interested in the subject, and only a few of them obviously are truly interested in the subject or have the time or the leisure to follow up whatever int amount of interest they in fact have, that they can, they can find out more about that subject. I mean, it is a great pity that we um, we are we deal in partialities all the time. I think that, uh, however, that is one of the the realities of the situation that we have have to deal with. Uh, we can only teach uh, so many books, and um, and we have, I think, uh, uh, certain obligations. I do not think that we can meddle uh, too easily with uh, too readily with the canon without doing a certain amount of damage. I'm not sure what the damage is exactly that we are doing. Um, if, if, for example, um, uh, if we are, when we, we, we teach certain authors, it seems to me that uh, behind those authors, when we would like to teach certain authors, behind those authors are certain other, other authors, and they, they, the list goes on and on. It just seems to me to be a, a virtually endless product. I fall back in talking about the canon on a, on a, a remark that may or may not have uh, any real weight to it, and that, is, and that is that we need to read more books, uh, really, not, not fewer books or not the same number of books. We just need to read more. We, we do need to read more books. Um, and I don't believe that we are, are close to the number of books we, we can, in fact, read if we, uh, if we put our, our minds to it. Professor Paglia. Oh. All right. Well, I just what, you know would like um, people in literature, literature departments to stop using the canon as a as a as a shortcut to uh, for their hazy you know political good intentions. That instead, let's just face it: the Western tradition is a tradition, and let's revise education so that there is um, there is formal um, learning in all of the other world traditions. Uh, we, we, the problem for me is not ignorant students, but ignorant professors. All right. So the, the shortcut of, of twisting and deforming what is an historical fact. Uh, the Western tradition seems to be absolutely self-serving. It's a form of pandering, and the real marginalizers are the people who are trying to do that. Let, let us, let us, you know, have, everyone should have the obligation to to um, to make themselves familiar with um, with African American music, uh, popular culture, dance. Okay, what's going on right now in the culture at this moment, and also to to be studying the, the literature and art and the and the spiritual traditions of all the other great world cultures. All right, that is the task before us. It's, it's faculty self-education. It's not being done, and shortcuts are being taken. David um, Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, w I once played a cruel trick on a deconstructionist and <laughs> asked him in a, in a context favorable to such a question. Um, we were talking about a mutual acquaintance we both agreed that we should distrust and about whom we agreed that he was a megalomaniac. And I, I said to this, 
eminence. Um, you, you believe in self-deception, don't you? And he said, oh, of course, very dangerous thing. Uh, we have to get rid of it. Uh, there's no amount of delusion that we aren't capable of. Um, the trick was that this was somebody who had argued exhaustively in his slender collected works uh, against the idea of a self, and yet he found the idea of self-deception most important. Um, I, I want to endorse a point that's come from uh, Edward Said and a couple of others on the utility um, and the uh, kind of uh, aversion from bad faith that can come from teaching what you love. Uh, this seems to me uh, not universally done now. Um, it, maybe it wasn't done out of a sort of tedious obedience to convention in the earlier old boy generations, uh, but in the current younger old boy and girl uh, generations, um, I, I sense that it is not done sometimes because the teaching of literature is conceived of as a therapy of disillusionment. Um, I think disillusionment is good to have for everyone, but you've got to get it in your own way. Nobody can teach it to you. Um, and uh, as to uh, the point of uh, which Arnold Rampersad raised somewhat rhetorically and ironically, and I would raise it in the same spirit, I suppose, well, what, what depends? It's good to teach uh, a lot of works that have been taught for a long time, he said, but come to think of it, why exactly do we do it? I want to suggest a very shallow, pragmatic reason why we do it, and that is so that students can talk to students who have come through colleges and universities five years before or 10 years before or 15 years before and have some points of reference in common. Even perhaps talk to each other across generations and have readily some points of reference in common. Um, it's very hard to get sensible argument on any of this, um, but I think the sensible arguments uh, start uh, uh, appearing uh, with at least a greater density um, when you resolve not to use the word canon. I'd like to take the prerogative of the chair to conclude with three, three thoughts, three threads of this discussion. One, uh, which I think and, and, and has been dealt with, I think, quite well, especially by Edward Said and Catherine Stimson, is the whole question of to what extent we choose books or teach books uh, to students to confirm the identity that they come in with or to what extent we try to challenge them with otherness. And, and, and I think the consensus of those who address that is that we're, we're doing both of those things all the time. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, a second point would be on the question of minor writers and I take Professor Rampersat's point and Professor Polya's point, yes we love minor writers but they're not always the ones that are teachable, okay? Uh, and, and, and the notion of minor writers means that there are almost an infinite a series of gradations between books that are clearly in the canon and books that are clearly forgotten and will never be revived. Uh, final point, uh, it's not so very long ago, we should recall, that there was no, that, that the canon did not include a single American book, American painting, or a piece of American music that America itself, in relation to the Western mainstream, was one of those marginal cultures, interesting but minor, knocking on the gates of the canon asking to be, asking to be admitted. I think, uh, thinking back to the period when, even within America, uh, Melville was alive in New York but utterly forgotten, uh, I think this should chasten us all as would-be canonizers or anti-canonizers. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for pouring the water. Thank you. <laughs>